1: Focused on helping organizations achieve sustainable improvement for themselves, others, and the planet. Welcome to episode 58 of the Enterprise Excellence podcast. It is such a pleasure to have Mr. Bruce Hamilton on the show with us today. Bruce has created some of the most engaging, knowledge transferring content I have ever come across in Lean, one of those being Toast Kaizen. Bruce is an author and educator who has helped some of America's largest and smallest organizations on their road to world class practices. Let's get into the episode. Bruce, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Thank you for having me, Bruce. Yeah,
1: it's a it's a pleasure. Bruce, what's what's your backstory? Like what significant moments and paths took you down this journey that you've been on, becoming such an influencer and in lean and continuous improvement and excellence within organizations?
0: Yeah. So so um, you know, it's just continuing. This is one of these things that every day is a new day. And the past past 18 months have definitely been in that category new challenges, new discoveries. Um, but my, my interest, um, you know, I, I guess by nature, I like solving problems. So I didn't ever plan on getting into manufacturing. I have a degree in English literature, which actually has fared me pretty well because there's a lot you can learn about people from English literature. Uh, and, um, but I started out in a marketing department, uh, and had fun with that. Then ended up, uh, uh, taking an interest in what we call data processing back in the 1970s uh, and uh, got into IT and uh, did that for seven or eight years, went back to school and really loved that. Great, great, lots of problem solving, but mostly technical problems. Uh, and that led me into, you know, a factory because somebody had to be using this uh, software. And, you know, there might. so this was an epiphany. They weren't using it very well. It wasn't doing much for them. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was a MRP kind of network scheduling. Uh, seemed like we had lots of inventory, but never had the right inventory. And you know, I was located in a building that was two blocks away. So I didn't have a lot of experience with manufacturing and it was pretty grim. You know, when I first visited there were people really slaving to try to do things in spite of the systems, not just the it, but everything else that was going on, it was somewhat of a it was not a total surprise to me because my father was a machinist and I got the feeling that he was not loving what he was doing. He was a long-suffering man, really wonderful, brilliant guy. And that's probably why I went into marketing. I didn't figure it out. Yeah. I'm going to try something different than that. So anyway, I end up, by happenstance, in manufacturing, have a need. And it was my good fortune. I've been very lucky that at the particular time, uh, this, uh, fast forward to maybe 1985, uh, there was a publisher that was just getting started in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, just a short distance from my plant called productivity press. There was okay. this very unusual dude named Norman Bodick and, uh, and we were just a couple of miles away and Norman took a liking to us. Uh, and you know, he brought Norm, that's a whole other story. Norman is an incredible guy. Kind of eccentric uh, Brooklyn guy on the one hand, but on the other hand, uh, just sort of very, very uh, mindful sort of person. And he brought, you know, brought this whole library of productivity to the West. It was incredible what he did. And I just happened to be there at the start of that. And he took a liking to us. So we had the good fortune of having visits from a lot of very famous Japanese consultants. You know, in the 1980s, nobody wanted to see him. We we were we were the only show in town. And I would like to say that that was because of, uh, you know, great insight on my part. But it was pretty much dumb luck. We had a problem. Um, you know, we we started out reading the only books that we could find on uh, continuous improvement. And one of them had a footnote in it to Shigeo Shingo, then to the Seven Wastes. And that led us to Norman. And then Norman got us started. And, you know, Norman also fa- founded the, uh, the Shingo Prize. So that was... Uh, You know, that was a big deal, too. That sort of headed us in that direction. But so so I discovered, um, you know, TPS, lean, continuous improvement out of need. The factory that I inherited was struggling. Uh, Our deliveries were not very good. Our costs were an issue. Morale was poor. And here was this means. And I was a novice. You know, it was my good fortune that I didn't know any better because I probably would not. uh, There's so much unlearning that's part of um, you know, what we now call lean. I didn't suffer from that because I didn't have that experience. So it's very good luck on my part.
1: Bruce, you're talking about Norman Bodic and the connection there with that um, you know, the publisher. How did you get connected in there to a publisher when you were working in a manufacturing facility?
0: Norman Bodic is a whole other story. He was somebody, he's a very important person in my life. He you know, he was not a manufacturing guy. He he knew relatively little about manufacturing. He, he, um, he was somebody who was, he was publishing transcendental meditation books in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Oh, that wow. was what Norman did. And before that, you know, he was head of a data processing uh, management association. He was quite the entrepreneur. I don't know how much he knew about data processing either, but he was an accountant. So possibly he did. And he spent some time down in Barbados uh, having uh, setting up banks of people to enter key telephone numbers into telephone books so norman was kind of at the forefront of all kinds of stuff and yes. then he moved on and did other stuff so by the time i seen him you know uh he, the, he had a little upstairs build business and on one side of the aisle was Pro- productivity press this fledgling company that was publishing a couple of books and across the aisle was rudra press which was pu- publishing books on transcendental meditation wow. very interesting man Uh, But anyway, I I came in contact with Norman Bodick because uh, as we, you know, when I got into it, found myself in manufacturing without a lot of background, I started to read. And an early book that's still, I think, a valuable book is one called uh, Zero Inventories. Uh, And it was kind of a reporter's book. It was somebody on the outside looking in. And somewhere right at the front of the book, there was a footnote to Shigeo Shingo and Seven Wastes. That led me to productivity press because norman was publishing shingo's books uh and there are some just wonderful books I, I i was on the i i got every one of those books i just told norman uh you know whenever you publish a book just send us one we'll pay for it so i don't know that i read them all but i read a lot of them and uh pretty much they were all japanese authors at the start there were a few others later uh some of which you know have just not ever come to light they've gone out of print and they were wonderful books So it's like this treasure trove of stuff still to be discovered. But that was very helpful to me. And certainly Shingo was a huge benefit to an organization that was struggling. For us, you know, it wasn't academic. Um, We were, you know, our on-time delivery was terrible. Our inventory turns were terrible. Um, And uh, Shingo had some answers to these things, the technical stuff. But he also, if you read read his writing, it's all about people, you know. So yeah, he's this yeah. technical guy who really loved to dig into problems. There's so much about human nature, and that was very valuable as well. In 1989, Shingo visited our plant, and wow. it, uh, you know, I, I bragged that it was the last U.S. plant he visited, only because you know he passed shortly thereafter. He probably would have gone elsewhere, yeah. but it was a memorable visit as well. Very memorable and uh he even wrote about it in his last book um because for him you know he you can imagine uh he was in a wheelchair and he was uh so he came in the employee's entrance uh because of stairs and so forth there was no way to get in at that time we had an employee's entrance and uh and uh so an announcement came over the pa that uh anybody would like to greet mr shingo on his way in they would be welcome to go and line up in the quarter. The place emptied, 400 employees emptied into this quarter and applauded for him. That was, I mean, totally unscripted. And uh, clearly had an impact on Shingo because he wrote about it. I think he would felt underappreciated. And his handler at the time, uh, Derek Kotze, uh, leaned over to me and he says he's never had an experience like this in his life. So I feel like, hey, we gave something back. Yeah, to the dude who brought uh, you know TPS out to the rest of the world. So that very big influence for me. Yeah,
1: that's massive. And um, I didn't realize too that that Rout- uh, Proactivity press and Routledge were that connected in with those early authors. Like i I got my book published by Routledge Proactivity press. Also, I didn't realize that history.
0: Well, this is a long time ago, Brad. You know, Productivity Press was split off, and that's a story. I won't go into the details on that, but Norman went through some changes in his life, and some of the business went one place, and some of it went another place. And, and he, he left Productivity Press. Uh, so Productivity Press lives on and publishes some great books. But at the time Norman was publishing, it was just one Japanese author after another. And he wow. had the knack to find these folks. You know, he found like his first book, which was one of his great books that doesn't get much attention is a book called Managerial Engineering by Ryuji Fukuda. And Dr. is still arrived alive. He's a Deming prize winner and he's a brilliant guy by himself. Um, and uh, so as I understand it, he this is how Norman got into publishing these books, because Norman and Ryuji Fakuda had the same Swami. And oh, they wow. met at an ashram. Oh. And this is, so this is Norman's mind, you know, all of a sudden new idea. And it uh, turned out to be a really great idea.
1: Yeah, I know. And what did he because do from quite an that.
0: interesting story. I don't, you know, Norman wrote a book about his own life and I don't know how much of it is in there, but I'm sure there's a bunch of other people who could write about it as well. So yeah. a very, very important guy.
1: And like the influence on yourself, but also Bruce, as we know on manufacturing all over the world, based on that publishing coming out and other content coming out. Yeah. Because there was a lot to learn wasn't there? There was a lot to learn.
0: A lot to unlearn.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a lot to unlearn. That
0: was the problem. You know? for, for me, it was easier because I'd never spent any time in operations, so it was just all new. Like, this must be the way it is. Um, but I know certainly as a consultant now, um, it's a struggle. You know, we, we're, we're so programmed uh, in our frameworks for measuring and determining what good looks like are just distorted. And uh, so it's conceptually, it's very difficult for managers in particular, because, you know, for production people, for folks who are on the floor, it's easier because, uh, first of all, they're familiar with things that aren't working very well. And secondly, because they're there, you know, they have that direct observation. I'm sure you've had this experience, too. You know, every time you walk into a workplace and you see what's actually going on it's like wow look at this but what's this isn't supposed to happen uh and this is this happens every day so i think but for managers you know typically uh in fact it wasn't even appropriate for managers to be out on the floor you know people maybe even in my own organization would say that's not our job you know we we have jobs that's you know we get people on the floor for that and um so you don't get close enough to actually discover why these concepts make sense
1: yeah, oh, Bruce, I've I've seen it all the time, and um, I've even been that side myself, where I've been sitting up in an office and thinking what the problem is, and this has got to happen, and then and then I go down and I talk to people and see on the floor, and and I go, oh, I was just being totally off course there. Yeah, <laughs> like I've had egg on my face. I got to admit.
0: Yeah, you know, it's uh, humbling,
1: very humbling. Yeah, but it's also reinforcing. I think. It's half the battle is just understanding and knowing because I guess if you, didn't, if you didn't know some of these things that Bowditch helped to start to spread and get word out there and then you've lived on that legacy and helped so much and others, you wouldn't have that epiphany necessarily. You'd go down and maybe still think your same path of we got to do this project or there's this thing we got to do.
0: That's true. That's true. It's, e- it's easy to take a look at something and not see anything. <laughs> I've had that experience too. Yeah. yeah. I kind of missed the whole picture.
1: Yeah. yeah. And Bruce, what, what led you to do things like Create Toast Kaizen and the, all this other great content that you've done? I can understand why it's so good because the thing that baffled me is how can someone from a pure lean engineering manufacturing background cut such an entertaining professional video in a very funny way and I understand because of your marketing background and some of the other things you've done in your career now, but what, what yeah, led you so, to that?
0: So, yeah. Th- so there's a story, definitely a story about that as well. Uh, and um, it's really not a professional video. You did it on the first take. Uh, but, look, and, look- um, but, but I will say it's the third time I'd done it. So, you know, I, at, at, I, bec- I just became really excited about uh, TPS or continuous improvement. And I love the job that I was in, but I, felt like I just wanted to get out and see more companies. So through the, in fact, through the Shingo Institute, I got out to visit really good companies and that just got me interested in seeing other th- companies. So I, um, kind of left, uh, after 28 years in one company, I left and, uh, decided I'm going to do, I'm going to become a consultant. And, uh, but before I left, I had this wonderful opportunity to work with an organization called the toyota production system support center an organization outside out of toyota and uh i know they've done some work in australia as well in fact i attended a uh presentation by toyota australia i think maybe that toyota australia is maybe moved on but at the time i i got so i had this opportunity to learn from from folks at toyota and it was totally different you know it was like um And after 10 years of trying to understand, and at this point we were a Shingo prize recipient. So we weren't overly proud of what we did, but we had, we were along the journey a little bit, we were doing things. And so that attracted a gentleman by the name of uh, Mr. Hajima Oba, who probably is the greatest influence on my work. It just changed the trajectory for me because, um, just oba had a way of asking questions to direct your observation it's kind of embarrassing you know like by the time he finished asking questions you're sort of feeling stupid and and um he was he was a tough guy but so he came in and said you select a project and we will help you with that so he helped me to understand i really what i consider to be a better way to approach tps you know like inch wide mile deep don't try to don't try to spread it everywhere that that doesn't work uh that was very helpful but the whole philosophy behind um you know not the technical part technical part was something we were starting to get fairly decent at but the philosophy was something that was really really powerful and uh like something as simple as direct observation making sure that you know you really are watching and i could tell you know, a a day's worth of stories about Mr. Oba and direct observation. Uh, But anyway, at one point, um, after working with us for several years, Mr. Oba said to me, um, his English was marginal. Okay, he says, management must do Kaizen too. Okay, so if you can imagine, it feels, this is gonna sound kind of hackneyish, but it was a a little bit like Mr. Miyagi and whatever that kid's name was, Daniel. I was about young enough to be Daniel at the time. And and, uh, uh, and I said, well, of course, Mr. Oba, I'm supporting all the time, I'm always doing, I'm, I'm helping people. He said, no, no, no. He says, you, Bruce, you must do Kaiser personally. And so, you know, I, as often the case, uh, I wasn't sure why, but I didn't ever argue with Mr. Oba because I took it on faith that he knew. Because he was just that smart, that brilliant. So I said, yeah, OK. And I, I, so I spent the next six weeks and I picked some projects that were things that I felt I could contribute. And they were all kind of on the factory floor. And uh, the folks on the shop floor, they were very helpful. I think they kind of laughed with me as I was struggling. And I learned along the way, that, A, it's not that easy. It's kind of humiliating. Uh, and uh, so, so there were some good things that I learned. And, uh, Oba comes back and I think it was about six weeks later and I showed him what I'd done and said, yeah, you've done a pretty good job. He says, now all management must do Kaizen. Now I was the general manager at the time. Uh, and, but not every one of my reports was buying it. They were not, they were supportive, but the idea of personally doing Kaizen that wasn't, that wasn't going to fly. Um, not for all of them. A couple of them said would do it. Uh, so I had, in a moment of desperation, uh, I uh, literally, you know, sort of that time in the middle of the night when you wake up uh, because you're just thinking so hard and you can't come up with a solution. Because I, I, this, this is how it was. If you, if I showed a commitment to it, TSSC, would continue to work with us. That was the, that was the deal. If I didn't show a commitment, they would wish us well and be on their way. And I didn't want that to happen. Yeah. So in a moment of, you know, they uh, just utter frustration, I came up with this idea that maybe I could get every one of our executives to practice direct observation and continuous improvement by going to a process where they wouldn't feel threatened or uh, self-conscious. And that was making a slice of toast. So that's where it came from. Nice. Came out of that. It was originally for an executive team and everybody did it. I worked for a privately held company and the owner of the company did a wonderful um, standardized work diagram and showed, you know, all of the steps that he'd taken. It was really quite good. I I wish that I'd saved it, but I I didn't. And everybody else did something. And out of that, i got maybe, I'd say, you know, maybe 50, 60% take up, but yeah. Okay. We see this now. We, we actually, nobody's ever watched me. Looked at us making a slice of toast before. And so, direct observation that makes a lot of sense. And we see where the waste is. And that then, when I went into consulting, I made that video because I'd used that video. And then I made another one that was a little neater because, you know, having your son crying in a video doesn't work well at customers. And then finally, somebody in my office said, you know, maybe if you polish this up a little bit, uh, make it a little longer so we can sell it. Well, ironically, we probably shouldn't have made it longer today. Nobody wants to see anything over eight minutes long. No, no. But it, So that's the whole brutal story of Toast Kaizen. And so that, that video was made in 2004. But the original intent was to convince uh, a leadership team that they needed to be more involved in continuous improvement. Go to
1: enterpriseexcellencepodcast.com backslash downloads to download an Enterprise Excellence Big Picture Map, which will allow you to analyze your organization's systems in line with your longer-term vision, meaningful goals, culture, and customers. Please like, subscribe, and share this podcast to help others gain insights and create a better future. Let's get back into the episode. I love that story, Bruce, because there's two parts to it. One, i got to admit, in Australia and myself, and everything that I've been spoken to, Toast Kaizen has been very much largely used as a middle management frontline education tool. Yeah. And then, like, I that conversation about OBA and the need to engage the executive and for them to run continuous improvement or Kaizen and what you did with Toast Kaizen to help create that. Like, whereas why? Why have you discovered that that is important? What OBA said that. The management executive get involved in continuous improvement?
0: Yeah, well, it, not only Mr. Oba, I mean, if you take a look at the great thinkers, they're all saying, I mean, W. Edwards Deming was all over this, you know, what management's role was. And Mr. Oba, you know, he understood that, um, you know, there were two, There, there, there are really two parts to the kind of integrated TPS model. One of them is the technical part. So tools—they're they're decent. The they're pro- pro- countermeasures they call them, but the other is they call TPS managerial. Like, uh, yeah. So we got—we have quality tools, but 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 nobody wants to admit to a problem because uh, you know they're going to get punished for it. So we don't have a quality culture. We, we're missing that. So the TPS managerial was there to so that managers could create an environment that was favorable for this stuff you know, to, to, to so people would surface problems rather than sweeping them under the rug. And so, and, and the status quo was, yeah, hide problems, uh, keep your nose down, don't get involved. Uh, and where'd that come from? Well, that came from management systems too. Yeah. And so, so, so uh, it was a matter of undoing that. And that's why the word commitment is so big. You know, just you, you got to let people know this is important. If a, if a manager is not present, it doesn't mean that they're lukewarm about the what you're doing. It means they're against it. You know, that's what people immediately said. Well, well, Joan isn't even here. She must hate this, what, what we're doing. And uh, so he, he said there, there were two things. Uh, he said, first of all, management needs to understand some level of the details. You can't have a commitment if you don't really understand some of the details. You don't need to be an expert, but you need to understand why set up a quick changeover would be important. If you don't understand that, how can you be passionate about telling people it's okay. Uh, practice the changeover, take that time, make that investment. Um, and so, so he was a, Mr. Oba spoke in 2003 incidentally, he passed just this past December, very tragic, oh, wow. you know, really a big loss for me. Uh, and, uh, you know, he, he's such a huge influence, not just on me, but many, many people. Um, uh, but he was asked uh, point blank, um, why doesn't why doesn't why don't us manufacturers this is in the us so probably you could fill in fill in the blank it doesn't really matter you could say why australian manufacturers i I would guess yeah uh, why don't why isn't there more take up why, why haven't they gotten the full benefits of tps and without hesitation he said first of all management does not know what tps is they don't understand tps uh, and second of all, uh, they're totally uh, they're, they're totally bound by quarterly earnings. That's all they're focused on. So between those two that and that, of course, probably has something to do with the first answer of not understanding TPS. Uh, at that, you know, there's this this problem that somehow or other people in management think that that's for somebody else to do, that it's so radically the, the thinking is so and concept, concepts are so radically different the business model the cost accounting the management accounting the, the way businesses are organized the physical organization the, the general ledger the you know the chart of accounts all messed up doesn't it doesn't uh, you know when i first tried to do training uh i had people on the floor coming up to me saying bruce i don't know if you know this but you know that training you're doing that's considered non productive time and i don't think that's going to be good at my review yeah. i asked about it they said well that's all we got you know you're either absent or you're here or you're non-productive and uh so that meant we had to go back and ask questions about why would that happen why would we consider learning to be non-productive so you go through all these things ultimately they they start to tail back to somewhere along the line a person has to give permission to change and that person has to understand themselves first there was a a quote in 1989 uh when that was the the first year of the Shingo Prize and the Baldridge Prize, which are both are which are fairly major prizes, uh, I think Shingo is maybe more major now, was 1988, and the one recipient of the Baldridge Prize in 1988 was uh, the Milliken Company, a large uh, textile company, privately held. The owner was Roger Milliken, a man who. Uh, You know, he stayed in his business till the age of 95 running his business. So it was kind of a family company. Uh, This is a company that at one point was reputed for generating 400 ideas per employee per year. I'm not sure if they're at that standard now, but it makes you wonder, well, how the heck do you even track that? How can that be possible? That's the kind of thing. That's why you have to be thinking right. If you think that can't be done, of course, you're right. So he was asked, what are the three biggest obstacles to continuous improvement? And his response was top management, middle management, and first-line supervision. <laughs> so this was from the standpoint of somebody who was leading the charge. He recognized that we kind of get in the way. We, you know, we managers, we, we created these systems. You know, they weren't, they didn't just sort of natural laws. We made these things up and we've created things which, which prevent people from fixing problems. So that's why that's why Oba, I'm sure, thought this was very important.
1: Yeah, I really hear in that conversation, Bruce, too, the, the risk of just how you measure a team or another leader, or the system of how you look at time allocation, the, the system of how you consider training. It, it drives a culture, too, at the same time, doesn't it? That whole.
0: It, it absolutely does. It, there's, there's this structure there that, uh, that frames our thinking. So it's, and then that, you know, we, people say tools and culture, but tools are part of the culture. I mean, it's all one, they're all part of the same thing. They, they affect each other.
1: Yeah. And I find Bruce, I don't know your thoughts, but I find a lot of um, leadership teams in organizations. They don't want to take the time to take a review of their systems in the business. Like they're busy, they're flat out, they're highly stressed. And then when it comes to the whole concept of systems drive behavior, a lot of the times they don't want to put the time into looking at how we're measuring people. They don't want to put the time to look into the system of who's actually meeting in our business and why are we running these meetings and what do these meetings drive? And it, there seems to be this reluctance to actually reflect and review on all this stuff we put in place. Do you find that, Bruce?
0: Yeah. So, well, look, I think, you know, um, management, like many other parts of the top management is over, overburdened. They're overwrought. And and look at how they're measured. I mean, the last, I, I I don't know if the statistic has changed, but at one point not too long ago, the average life of the CEO is three years.
1: Yeah, so they only wrong. get
0: so much time to make some sort of a mark. And and that, given that kind of framework, and I'll just say that you know, if I had to pick one area where senior management, where leadership is just striking out, it's long term thinking. Just take a look at this freaking pandemic. Yeah, you know. There, there is no amount of strat- of tactics that can overcome a lack of a strategy. And I, I, it's almost, I feel like it's almost maybe a natural flaw in human nature. We only live so long, so our framework, even though, you know, whether it's the pandemic or whether it's uh, the environment, uh, all of those kinds of things, scarcity of resources, uh, I just think we have, we're, we're myopic. I can only see so far. Yeah. And uh, and so th- management, the best management are the visionaries. Visionary means we're seeing over the horizon. We're looking, we're looking for that because people need that leadership. And in the absence of that, we're all nearsighted. We're all just looking at scarpe diem. What, what, what's going on right now? It's sort of like uh, organizational ADD, just like work on this, work on that. And no thought about future and the result is you know the future arrives but it's totally out of control and so we're just reactive if we did nothing more than just think hard about you know yeah you're not going to be right all the time but of course if you're not thinking about it at all you're never going to be right so it's yeah just-
1: what an entertaining first episode with bruce hamilton Boy, you some fantastic stories with the great lean thinkers has helped some of america's largest corporations and some of its smallest on the road to world-class practices i can hear that humor plays a big part in bruce's philosophy towards learning we will continue to chat next week join us next week for the concluding episode this two-part episode series truly provides insights to help us all create a better future talk to you next week bye for now